Over the next couple of weeks in the morning, we're going to be uh, looking at the subject of friendship, friends. And uh, we're going to be looking at that for two or three weeks um, throughout July. And uh, one, of our, one of our values as a church is that we are people-focused. We want to be people-focused. And we have said we want to be a church that is constantly and naturally reaching out to unchurched people and to be a church where people can belong and experience a community and play their part. That's the kind of church that we want to be. And I want to talk about um, over the next few weeks, and we're not going to cover everything this morning, so I want to talk about the power of friendship. Now, I feel a little bit like a waiter at our favorite restaurant or one of our favorite restaurants. Whenever we go to Positano's, the Italian restaurant in town, uh, we always order for dessert, we always order tiramisu for two. And, uh, and the waiter who serves us, who's been serving us for years, he always makes the same joke, which is, uh, I'll get three forks, shall I? <laughs> one for you, one for you, and one for me. I'll pull up a chair, and we'll share it. And uh, he always says that. He always says the same thing, um, uh, three forks. Um, and I feel when I'm speaking about friendship, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to serve the tiramisu this morning. I'm going to pull up a chair, and I'm going to bring my fork. Because I think it's for every one of us. I think whatever stage of life we're in, whether we're young or whether we're old, I think there's stuff for us here to learn. And I do think it's a really important subject. In the creation narrative in, in Genesis, God crafts creation a masterpiece, painting sky and earth and the beauty and splendor of creation unfolding as God speaks his words. And each creative sweep of God's hand is punctuated with the phrase throughout Genesis 1, and God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. And you can see why. I think every time you take a walk in the woods or or you're out on the moors, or you overlook the sea, as I, I was doing the other day, and I was looking out at the Plymouth Sound, and you look at the beauty and the splendor of creation, I think we can see, or a glorious sunset, or admiring the beautiful rolling green hills that surround us in Devon and Cornwall, it really is good. <laughs> what God made really is good. The plants, the animals, God's beautiful creation, is so creatively beautiful and splendid and, and speaks of, the Bible says, speaks of the glory of God. But then we read in, in the Genesis account of, of one, Genesis 1, but then God created man, Adam, in his own image. And before sin had entered the world, it was paradise. And before the fall, and God looks at Adam, God looks at the man, and he says, for the first time in his creation, it is not good. It is not good to, for man to be alone. And all the time, God is crafting and creating and making the beauty of creation. And even as he makes man in his own image, for the first time, God says, and this is before sin entered the world, he said, it is not good for man to be alone. As Tim Keller writes, we can't enjoy paradise without friends. We can't enjoy paradise without friends. And the author and the pastor, Kevin DeYoung, states, 
Have you ever noticed we seldom study friendship? It's the most important, least talked about relationship in the church. So I think this is an important subject, and which is why we're going to be getting into it in the month of July, because friendship is powerful. It is good. It is a gift of God. We are called to follow Jesus in the company of friends. And none of us has got this mastered. We all need to pull up a chair and get out our fork. We can idealize it. We can idealize friendship. We can bemoan our lack of friends. But we can all learn and grow in this area. The sitcom Friends was one of the most successful sitcoms of all times that we have had on our television screens. At the heart of this show, which was about six friends, was the sheer power and dynamism of friendship. And even 15, 20, 25 years after this sitcom had stopped running, it was still the most watched sitcom in the UK. There's something about friendship that is so attractive to us. It's so, we're so desirous of it. We're so wired for it. And God declared that it's not good for us to be alone. We all of us want and we all of us need friends. Nicky Gumbel said, people aren't looking for a friendly church. They're looking for a church where they can make friends. And when we look at God and his creation and his creative ability and let us make man in our, our own image, we see the Trinity. We see God as Trinity, God three in one, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And God wants us to know that intimacy is at the heart of his intention from square one. As the author and the pastor Jonathan Holmes observes, the Trinity is the most fundamental expression of community and relationship. Therefore, one of the simplest yet most profound aspects of mankind being made in God's image is that we were designed to live in relationships. God made us in his image. God made us in the image of the Trinity. God let us make man in our own image. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so, uh, Justin Whitmill early says... If the friendship of the Trinity is in our spiritual DNA, then becoming more like God means becoming a friend. As we let friendship and Christian community be our center of gravity, we will reflect and glorify the Creator who made us in the image of His triune friendship. It's been interesting. I've read a number of books on this um, recently. I've read a book by Phil Knox called... Um, um, I can't remember what it's called. It's a book on friendship by Phil Knox, The Best of Friends, it's called, The Best of Friends. I read a, a great book, which is not a Christian book, but it's a book called uh, Friendship by Joseph Epstein. Um, and uh, I've read a book um, recently, another book, uh, which I'll mention later on, The Other Half of Church by Jim Wilder and Michelle Hendricks, that actually talks about our brains and friendship and our bodies. We were literally made wired for fellowship with God and with others. We're wired this way. Our brains are wired this way. And in his book, Phil Knox writes about the cuddle chemical oxytocin that is released when we cuddle people, when we touch people, when we are interacting with people. He talks about cortisol, which 
is a negative chemical in many ways that arises, the stress levels rise when we don't have friends, when we don't have interaction with other human beings, which is why the pandemic affected us so very deeply as a society. And endorphins as well, which are released when we interact with other people and when we do things with other people in a positive way, then all of these chemicals are at work. We are wired, literally wired, chemically wired for friendship. Our right side of our brain is wired for connection and for interaction with other people. Phil Knox writes about the scientific, the biological, the neurological power of friendship. And relationship is seriously good for our health. We are hardwired in our bodies for connection and equal in equal measure, there are dire consequences for us when we are disconnected and we do not have friends and we do not have social connection with other people. It is better, writes Phil Knox, to eat kebabs with friends than a salad on your own. <laughs> Being in meaningful relationships is life-giving in the most literal sense. John Ortberg writes in his book, one of the most thorough research projects on relationships is called the Alameda County Study, headed by a Harvard social scientist. It tracked the loves of 7,000 people over nine years. Researchers found that the most isolated people were three times more likely to die than those with strong relational connections. People who had bad health habits, such as smoking, poor eating habits, obesity, or alcohol use, but strong social ties lived significantly longer than people who had great health habits but were isolated. In other words, it is better to eat Twinkies with good friends than to eat broccoli alone. <laughs> A Harvard researcher, Robert Putnam, notes that if you belong to no groups but decide to join one, you could cut your risk of dying over the next year in half, which is why it's so important to join a group <laughs> for our next series. <laughs> it could save your life, literally. In their book, The Other Half of Church, Jim Wilder and Michelle Hendricks write about the central importance in discipleship of joy and attachment, <clears throat> that the left side of our brain is what we focused on in church for so long, doctrine and knowledge and teaching and understanding, but actually the right side, which is about joy and attachment and relationship and connection, is so vital to our development as friends and as disciples of Jesus, as a society, as a culture, as a church, as the ecclesia, God's people, that actually that's what we were made for, for this joy and spiritual connection. Relationships are central to who we are and how we develop, to our happiness and to our health. And the fact of distinguishing the happiest 10% of people from everyone else is the strength of their social relationships. There's something good about getting to know people, spending time with them and engaging with each other on a deep level that profoundly impacts our physical, emotional and spiritual health. Friendship is powerful. And it is gifted and it is mandated by God. Community is the place that God created for us to dwell. And relationship is the train that he invited us to board. From Genesis to Revelation, as we read the Bible, from the garden to the heavenly city, we see real people in real relationships and, 
and the centrality of friendship. Eugene Peterson writes about David and his friendship with Jonathan. It was essential to David's life. It is highly unlikely that David could have persisted in serving Saul without the friendship of Jonathan. Jonathan's friendship entered David's soul in a way that Saul's hatred never did. There was something about David's friendship with Jonathan which sustained him through the toughest of times, even the enmity of Saul who tried to kill him on many an occasion. And as Eugene Peterson writes, friendship is a much underestimated aspect of spirituality. It's every bit as significant as prayer and fasting, like the sacramental use of water and bread and wine. Friendship takes what is common in human experience and turns it into something holy. And so when we look at the Bible and when we look at patterns of friendship, we're best to look at Jesus. I don't know if you ever go online, but you can go online and you can get a masterclass in almost anything these days. If you go on YouTube, you can watch a masterclass in how to do pottery or masterclass in cooking or masterclass in public speaking. Someone somewhere is given a masterclass on, on whatever subject you're interested in. People who've mastered a subject or a field. But if we want to master friendship, then we can do no worse and no better than look at Jesus who utterly modeled it for us. He is a masterclass and a model when it comes to friendship and relationship. You remember those uh, br bracelets that people used to wear? What would Jesus do? WWJD? What, would G what did Jesus do when it came to friendship? I think there's some things we can learn off him. I think, first of all, it's to state that Jesus had friends. Jesus had friends. He said in John 15, he said, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. You are my friends, John 15, 15. And as we read about Jesus' life and his interaction with men and women, he had friends. He was friends with Mary and Martha. And he was friends with Lazarus. And he was friends with many others, including and especially those 12 followers of his, his disciples, and especially three of them, and especially one of those. And Jesus had friends. Secondly, Jesus was purposeful about his relationships. Jesus said in the same chapter when he's speaking to them in John 15, he said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And in Proverbs 12, 26, the righteous choose their friends carefully, it says, the righteous choose their friends carefully, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. Jesus was very purposeful about his relationships. In fact, the third thing that he did about his friendships is that he was very prayerful about those. Luke deliberately details in his account of when Jesus calls his disciples to himself that Jesus goes out and he spends a night on the mountain praying to his father before he gathers his team around him. Many of us will not spend a single minute praying about who we should surround ourselves with, let alone a whole night. But Jesus was very purposeful, and he was very prayerful about who he spent time with. And we uh, could and should do the same. And the other thing to notice about Jesus that is very true of us too, if we're going to build sustained and lasting and meaningful friendships with people, is that there are circles of friendship. Jesus had the one disciple that 
was called John, the, the disciple. He describes himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. And there was a very kind of intimate, friendly, uh, close relationship that Jesus had with John. But then he also spent more time, but still exclusive time, with three friends, Peter, James, and John. And at times, he would call them by themselves to go off somewhere up a mountain, into a valley, into, an, into a situation, into a ministry situation. And he would say, Peter, James, John, let's go. And, and Jesus had his one very close friend, and then he had his three closer friends, and then he had the 12, and then he had the 72 that followed him and that knew him and ministered to his needs. A number of those were women. And then he had the crowds, the thousands of people that would come and would follow him. There's been a lot of work done on, on friendship circles and our capacity as human beings to connect with other people. And a lot of research has been done by a psychologist called Robin Dunbar, who comes up with the number 150 and says that actually uh, that is the maximum number of relationships that we can realistically sustain. So the average wedding list, wedding invitation list is 154 and there are, uh, the average list for other things is 144 but around the 150 is, is the maximum number of people that we can meaningfully relate to. But we have to un un grasp the sometimes uncomfortable nettle that Jesus did not treat all of his friends in the same way, and neither can we. And this is the tension that we sometimes grapple with in a church situation, in relational circles, but the kingdom of God is both scandalously and beautifully and counterculturally inclusive for all, and yet we are finite human beings in a restricted space with a limited amount of time and emotional energy. And Jesus had circles of friendship and connection, and we need the same. So I want to look this morning at some of the pillars of friendship. What are some of the things that we can build friendship on? And I want to be quite specific and quite practical over these next few weeks. And some of this may speak to you, some of it may not, but I want to make you think, and I want you to uh, examine your own life uh, in light of some of these things. Some of the pillars of friendship. The first pillar of friendship that I, I want to think about is commonality. Commonality. To have things in common with other people. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Four Loves. And he talked about the different types of love. And one of those was philos, which is friendship. And he says, friendship arises out of mere companionship when two or more of the companions discover that they have in common some insight or interest or even taste which the others do not share and which, till that moment, each believed to be his own unique treasure or burden. The typical expression of opening friendship would be something like, what, you two? I thought I was the only one. A sense of commonality. And Jesus said of his disciples, he said, the world will know that you are my disciples because you have love one for another. That's what will distinguish you and set you apart, is your connection to one another, your love for one another. And there is something in the church, and Paul mentioned it this morning, is the beautiful diversity of a church fellowship and the unity of a church fellowship. 
Paul writes and challenges those in the church to contend as one man for the faith of the gospel. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. Tim Keller says, for believers in Christ, despite enormous differences in class, in temperament, in culture, in race, in sensibility, and personal history, there is an underlying commonality that is more powerful than them all. This is not so much a thread as an indestructible steel cable. We have something of a commonality in the Church of Christ that centers around and coalesces around Jesus. And we are so different as a people. We are so different as individuals. And there will be people that we meet and that we befriend at a closer level that we say, what, you too? <laughs> and you have the same interests? And, and that's where there is some joy and some traction, I feel, in some of the activity groups that we run as a church, is to do things together with people that have the same interests and have the same pursuits and have the same kind of uh, things that, that excite them and that um, they're passionate about. But also, and above and beyond that, as, as Tim Keller points out, in spite of all the enormous differences that we find in a church body, we have something that draws us together, a commonality that Paul writes about in Philippians that is not so much a thread as a steel cable that draws us together. Commonality is a pillar of friendship and relationship. The second pillar that I want to highlight and for us to think about is time is the subject of time. A core component of Jesus' plan was simply to spend time with people. Jesus was someone that spent unhurried time with people. One of his greatest investments was time. He took 12 people and he spent three years with them, just pouring his life into them, spending time with them, morning, afternoon, and evening. And Mark records when he called them, he called them that they might be with him, that they might spend time with him. Now, people rarely drift into deep community. It's not something you drift into. It's not something that happens by chance. Psychologist Alan McGuinness notes that rule number one for entering into deep friendships sounds deceptively simple. Assign top priority to your relationships. Ironically, we tend to devote massive amounts of time to making money or to running errands or to succeeding in our jobs, but we sometimes neglect giving our most valuable possession, which is time, to the experience for which we were created, which is community. And we have to be so intentional about this. And as I said, the pandemic showed us what happens when we don't have that. One of the most countercultural statements in Scripture is a description of the early church. 
In speaking of the people's oneness of heart and mind, the writer notes, they met together daily. And maybe the biggest single barrier to deep connectedness for most of us is simply the pace of our lives, is our busyness, is our lack of time, is the lack of time that we make for friendship. And the requirement for true intimacy is chunks of unhurried time. Wise people, says John Ortberg, do not try to microwave friendship, parenting, or marriage. You can't do community in a hurry. Many people lack great friends for the simple reason that they have never made pursuing community a high priority. Good friendships, says Phil Knox in his book, take time. And great friendships take a long time. And the best friendships take even longer. And research by uh, various people into this have showed that you need at least 300 hours of quality time with someone before you can be a good friend to them. Jesus spends a lot of time with his friends and with his disciples. He eats with them. He walks with them. He talks with them. He sails and he fishes with them. He attends weddings with them. He ministers with them. He baptizes with them. He prays with them. He spends simply three years of his life being with his followers, sharing his life with them. There's something in us, and certainly in us as leaders, I think, that looks at outcomes, that looks at training and modules and programs and knowledge bases. But there is something about relationship, about connectedness, about friendship that is absolutely central to your spiritual and my spiritual development, to my growth as a Christ follower. I can't grow without it. I am called to follow Jesus in community, and I can't be without it. So time is another pillar of friendship. Commonality is one pillar. Time is another pillar that we have to invest carefully and thoughtfully and intentionally. And the third thing that I think is a pillar of friendship is presence or proximity. We were made for presence, the presence of God and the presence of other people. It is not good for man to be alone. The word became flesh, incarnated and dwelt amongst us. The presence of God, the presence of Jesus walking amongst us, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. God came near and the Bible tells us that there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. We were not made to be socially distanced. And when a deadly virus necessitated keeping one another at arm's length, we lost our greatest comfort at the worst possible time, which is presence, the presence of other people in our lives. Piglet sided up to Pooh from behind. Pooh, he whispered, yes, Piglet, nothing, said Piglet, taking Pooh's paw. I just wanted to be sure of you. Being in the same physical space as someone matters. That's why online church is okay for a season. 
but it is no substitute for actual presence. It serves a purpose for those that can't attend, for those that are housebound, for those that are at a distance from us. But online church is no substitute for being present with God's people. There is something so important and sacramental about being together in the same place and the same space. For withness and proximity, for touch. Joseph Epstein in his book on friendship said, the first obligation of friendship is attendance. It's to be there. And at the most important junctures of our life, if ever you're in doubt whether to be there, the answer is yes. <laughs> to be there. Ruth said to Naomi in that powerful passage of Scripture in Ruth 1.16, when Naomi said, you, you go, Ruth and Orpah, you, you go and go back to your people and leave me and this hasn't worked out and your husbands have died, go start a new life. And Ruth said to Naomi, do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from following you, for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And your people will be my people. And your God will be my God. Naomi, and Ruth said to Naomi, I am with you, Naomi. I am going wherever you're going. I'm there. I am present. I am with you and I'm staying with you. The best of friends eventually find that they can just be in each other's presence and sometimes not even talk or do anything. Just to be with each other is enough. And I believe, says James Houston, the founder of Regent Theological College, who's written numerous books and theological papers, I believe that rather than professional pursuits or even writing meaningful books, the prime action of our lives is the face-to-face -face encounter with others, bringing God's presence into their lives by being living epistles, as the apostle puts it. The prime action of our lives. We can write the stuff and we can interact with knowledge, but it's the face-to-face -face encounter with others, bringing God's presence into each other's lives. How much sometimes does a touch meant or an arm around the shoulder or just the presence of another human being, being fully present, being fully present to one another is so important and being a good listener is part of being fully present. It's being interested in others rather than yourself. It's learning to dance with another. In his book, and I want to look at this more next week in The Vulnerability of Friendship, but um, in his book, John Ortberg speaks of the dance of the porcupines and how to get up close to mate <laughs> with their porcupine quills. They have to get on their hind feet and they have to dance. And James says in James 1, 19 to 20, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. I wrote a piece on this, which I've read before, so I apologize for those that have heard it. 
But it's this dance of friendship. The, the fact that being present to someone and with someone often involves listening and shutting up and being interested in other people. Shut up and listen. <laughs> this is important. We're all good at talking, but not so much at listening. It is really hard to find people that really listen well, that ask intelligent questions, that reflect on what you are saying, and that show genuine interest in others and what they have to say. Try to be one of those people. Someone who isn't always bursting to give their opinion, their remedy, their answer, even before the other person has finished formulating what they have to say. Listen and listen well. Look the person in the eye. Try to understand what they are really saying and maybe what they are not saying, but what they mean. Be quick to do this. Be ready to do this. You will be amazed what you can learn when you listen well to people. Be a good listener. Be an interested listener. Be an inquisitive listener. And don't feel that you have to give an opinion on everything. Don't interrupt people mid-flow. Don't be the wise guy who has all the answers. Don't be a bore. Show a little conversational humility. Be a little slower to speak. There is something very attractive, very winsome, and very rare about people who are genuinely interested in you. Be one of those people. Shut up and listen. And while we are talking about slowing down, be a little slower in coming to the boil as well. Watch your temper. You don't have to react every time someone cuts you off in traffic. You don't have to shout and gesticulate and come out with those choice words. Don't be so quick to lose your temper. Slow down. A little more grace with your children. More kindness and consideration with your husband or your wife or your colleague. Don't be so quick to believe the worst about others. Stop taking offense. This isn't the way to live as a Christian. It's not pleasing to God. It's not right. Be slow to get angry. My dear brothers and sisters, become a better listener, a more considered conversationalist, a more patient person. This is what God wants. It's a bit like a dance, really. Quick, slow, slow, quick, slow, slow. We need to keep learning these dance steps, these rhythms of grace. Joseph Epstein said that the crux of conversation in friendship is the willingness to listen. And he, he quotes this, he says, good listeners may be as rare, perhaps rarer than good talkers. Max Beerbohm noted of the English critic Desmond McCarthy that his voice contained an endearing intimacy. His talk was a form of chamber music, for McCarthy was especially adept at bringing other people into the conversation. And he was also a great user of the beguiling phrase, and tell me. Isaac and I were on a fishing boat in Florida last year, and we met a Californian professor of music. So different to us, from the other side of the world, from the other side of the spectrum, and he sat next to us and he caught fish. But what struck me about this Californian professor of music who traveled the world with his um, orchestras and his operas and was obviously extremely accomplished at what he did and probably fairly wealthy and 
he'd experienced a lot and he probably had a lot of stories to tell. What struck me so much as he sat next to these two Brits on a fishing boat in Florida was that he turned to Isaac and he said, so tell me, tell me about yourself. And Isaac starts to tell him about his studies. That's really interesting, tell me. And I just listen and watch this guy engage us in conversation, listen to us, show curiosity, genuine curiosity. That's fascinating. And do tell me, and tell me. And I sat there looking at this, fascinating to me, professor of music, thinking I'd like to hear more about your life and your stories. But the ability to listen well and show curiosity is an amazing thing. The pillars of friendship, commonality, and for some of us in our circles of friendship, our ones and our threes and our twelves and our seventy-twos and our hundred and fifties and beyond, there will be those that we have C.S. Lewis moments with and we say, what, you too? We feel that sense of commonality, but above and beyond that and undergirding all of that is our commonality as the people of God, that they had all things in common and that we have this steel connection. Time is so important and making time for good friendships and building time into our lives for that. And presence is essential. We're going to break bread in a few moments together. And Jesus' death on the cross would usher in a new community. And uh, when, when Paul wrote to the Galatians, he said that actually all these dividing lines that separated you all Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and master, they're gone in the gospel of and through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in, in Christ Jesus. And when Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, who were not getting everything right around the table the, of communion, the, the, the shared meal, I say, commemorated Jesus' death, he said this to them in, in 1 Corinthians 10. He said, It's not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ, and is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the same loaf. We who are many are one body. We are companions, those that break and share bread together. And communion draws us together as one body. We are to examine ourselves and we are to forgive others as we ourselves are forgiven. And I want to talk about forgiveness in the coming weeks. Communion draws us together as one body. As Daryl Bock states, when we take communion, we proclaim both the Lord's death and our community oneness with fellow celebrants at the table. Our relationship to one another is not an accident, but a product of great design and cost. That theological reality should cause us to relate to one another with great sensitivity. Paul severely rebuked the Corinthian church because they were taking communion in a way that was not communal, that did not honor the body of Christ, and that was selfish and self-centered. And let's be honest this morning, as I pull up my chair and my fork and share this meal with you, 
Community is hard. I look around our church and I see the reality of that everywhere. Community, as one writer said, is the place where your least favorite person lives. There are people that don't get on. There are people that don't naturally like each other. People that fight and argue. There are people that feel this morning disconnected. People that feel lonely. There are people that feel like giving up on church and on community. And a number did during the pandemic. And it saddens me when I see that. Even in my own family, I see it. There are people that don't want to try anymore. And there are people that don't try very hard at all and don't commit to community and to friendship, that think it's an unimportant aspect of their Christian faith, and they could not be more wrong. There are people hiding in the shadows. There are people that come late and leave early. There are people in their middle years slowly drifting into isolation. And this is the mess of congregation. And this is also the Shekinah, the glory of congregation, both at the same time. This is family. And the Passover is a family meal. And D.A. Carson says, what binds Christians together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they have been saved by Jesus Christ. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. So when you and I take the Lord's Supper, you are doing it with brothers and sisters. You are doing it with family and with friends. And this bond is so life-transforming that it creates a basis for unity as strong as if people had been raised together. And I ask you this morning, in light of this meal and in light of this new community that Jesus instigated, I ask you to commit yourself afresh to loving the body of Christ. to loving his church and to loving his people, even your spiritual siblings that rub you up the wrong way, to friendship. And this will require commonality. It will, will, will require intentionality. It will require your time and it will require your presence. Is not this cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks, a participation in the blood of Christ, and is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one loaf. We who are many, we are one body, for we all share the one loaf. And Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. I have called you friends, Jesus says. 
You are my friends. I invite you to this table. I invite you into this community. I invite you into this Trinitarian unity. I invite you into relationship and friendship. I hope, as I've shared that this morning, as we come around the Lord's table, I hope it's irritated you. I hope it's got under your skin a little. (laughs) I hope it's bothered you and made you think. I hope it's encouraged you. I hope hope there's something to work on there for you and for me. Um, Because I say the ideal of this is so beautiful. The reality of it is so challenging. But as we come together around the Lord's table this morning, we examine ourselves. We forgive as we are forgiven. We take bread with our brothers and sisters and our friends. And uh, we do it in the name of Jesus. I'm going to ask the servers to come forward, please, and to prepare the Lord's table for us. Do you want to close your eyes in prayer? And I'm going to pray for us. And uh, as we move into this next part of our service and come around the Lord's table. There's plenty more to say on this subject, but um, it's just a foundation today. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you did not stay at a distance from us, but you became flesh. You dwelt amongst us. Thank you, Jesus, that even as you were preparing for death, you were praying for us that we might be one as you are one with your Father and with the Holy Spirit. It was your final prayer for us as your followers and for all those that would believe that we might be one as you are one. It was a distinguishing mark of your disciples that we would love one another. It is the great commandment to love God and to love one another. It is the foundational truth on which all the law and the prophets hang. And we were called into this relationship. It is not good for us to be alone. And Lord, I pray as individuals that we would commit afresh to the body of Christ, to being a part of a meaningful group and community, to chiseling out and making the time around our tables, in our homes, in our groups, to know that we follow Christ in community and friendship is a sacramental relationship at the very heart of that. And now, Father, as we come to your table, we pray, Lord, that you will forgive us our sins as we forgive those that sin against us. We pray that you would wash us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We pray that you would remove our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. We pray, Lord Jesus, that as we take this in remembrance of your body and your blood which was poured out for us, we remember that there is no greater love than to lay down a life for your friends. We thank you, Jesus, that you laid down your life for us and that you have called us not slaves or servants, but your friends. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you are for us. And Lord, I pray that as part of your one body, that as we come now and take these emblems, that we will know that we are part of something bigger and more important. 
and we thank you for it, Lord. We thank you for the body of Christ. And we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.